If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Daniel chapter 7? Daniel chapter 7. We're going to preach quick today and then hopefully pray a lot. Daniel chapter 7. And as you're getting there, uh, I, have, I have a bit of an illustration. I want you to imagine that after years of your life, after years of your life of struggling in the grind to kind of just make it to lower middle class, somebody comes up to you and they tell you, hey, I want you to know something. It is a, a certain fact, a certain fact that years from now, I'm not exactly sure when, but years from now, you will win the lottery. You will win the lottery. And then they, they, they begin to tell you, you get excited about that, and you ask, like, how do you really know this about me? How do you know that I'll win the lottery? How can you say that it's a certain fact? And then they just begin to tell you facts about your life that there's no way they could know unless they were not of this world. And so you're like, okay, this person's serious. They, they know that I'm going to win the lottery in a few years. And so then they begin to tell you, okay, but you're going to win the lottery in a few years, but before that happens... Before that happens, you are going to go broke. You're going to live a homeless life for a season. And you're going to feel a lot of pain during that time. Now, how would you respond? This is a fact. This is what's going to happen. It's not a, if you win the lottery, this won't. This is going to happen. You're going to go broke. You're going to have a time of pain. You're going to have a season of difficulty. You're going to live a homeless life. But one day, you're going to win the lottery. Now, that's going to change how you go through that season of difficulty, isn't it? It's going to change how you go through that season of difficulty. It doesn't make the pain in that season less painful. It doesn't even make the difficulties easier. But what it does do is provide you the desperately needed perspective and that needed perspective will be found in four words that you will find yourself telling yourself over and over and over again. And it's this is not forever. This is not forever. Those four words hold, hold quite an interesting amount of power in our lives. And that and those four words are the message of Daniel chapter 7. This is not forever. This is not forever. We read the first 14 verses last week and unpacked those, and now we will get into the remaining part of this apocalyptic literature, starting in verse 15. We'll read through 18. If somebody could give me control. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.
That's, we'll, we'll get to the other text in a moment, but I think it's important for us to hit on something here. Uh, the saints will possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Let's remind ourselves a little bit of the context of the prophecy that we are receiving right now. And it found, finds itself first in its historical context. Its historical context tells us in verse 1 of this chapter that this was in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's the king for most of the book of Daniel up until chapter 5 and 6, and then Belshazzar comes on the scene in chapter 5. Let me catch up to myself. Nebuchadnezzar dies, and since his death, the crown has been tossed back and forth, back and forth to various rulers until it lands on a man by the name of Nabonidus, who gifts the kingdom to his son, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is knowingly and, and very clearly in chapter 5 anti the people of God. He's anti-God. He just has nothing to, he wants nothing to do with God. In fact, in chapter 5, we see him attacking the people of God. And so this king has just taken the throne, and the question that they must be asking is, what can we as a people of God expect from this new ruler who we know to be arrogant and indifferent to God? It would have been a time of uncertainty and of lack of security for the people of God in the nation of Babylon. So that's the historical context. That's what the original readers are facing. But the, the next thing is the literary context, which is apocalyptic literature. And we talked about this a little bit last week, so I'm not going to be too long-winded here, but apocalyptic literature are symbols and the biblical ideas behind those symbols will guide and direct our, terp our interpretation. So maybe a, a better way to think of this is apocalyptic literature works like windows in a house. It works like windows in a house. So if you look through one window in a house, you have a certain vantage point, right? You can see certain things going on. If you were to come to my house in the front room, we have a front room with two windows, and you can kind of see most of the front room from the left window and some of the kitchen. But if you move to the right window in the front, you can see the entire front room and the kitchen. You get a different vantage point on what's happening. And so if something's going on inside the home, from the left window, you'd only get part of the story. From the right window, you'd get a clearer picture. And if you were to go around to the back of the house, you'd get an even clearer picture. Apocalyptic literature operates in that way. It's different windows of the same house. We notice this throughout this chapter. Verses 1 through 8 is one window that gives you a picture of what's happening on earth. And verses 9 through 14 gives you a different picture of the same situation from the vantage point of heaven. A different window. And then you come to verse 15 through 18 and, and there's a different vantage point. And then verses 19 through 22, it's another window. Different vantage point. And then verses 23 to 28, another window, clearing the picture up for us, helping us to understand. You see, throughout this entire chapter, it's the same event happening, but it's giving us different viewpoints and vantage points on the scenario at play. That's how apocalyptic literature works. Read Revelation that way. Watch how it shapes the book. The main idea of this chapter can be clearly seen in verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read those for us real quick. 
Daniel's confused about the dream. He's anxious in the beginning of this, and so he asks for clarity. He goes to an angel who is overseeing some of this vision, and he asks the angel for an interpretation, and the angel says this in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. This is something we're going to be learning throughout this chapter and what we'll learn throughout the rest of the apocalyptic literature in Daniel. It's that the saints, the people of God, will suffer under a temporary kingdom, but God will give them an everlasting kingdom. The saints, the people of God, will suffer under a temporary kingdom, but God will give them an everlasting kingdom. We saw that in the quick scene change early on in the chapter. In verses 1 through 8, we get insight into what is fear-based. Like we see these beasts coming out of a chaotic ocean, and it should mark us with fear. We should respond with a little bit of concern, anxiety within the soul. It should build angst within us. And then in verse 9 through 14, we get this calming scene where God, the Ancient of Days, is sitting on his throne, ready to give judgment. Let me explain how that works. I'm a parent of a toddler, and I love it. But here's something that toddlers do and something that adults do too. We just hide it better. We throw tantrums. So toddlers throw tantrums. Now, for those of you in here who are parenting this age, this is great advice. It's something that somebody told me years ago um, when we first had Emrek. He, he, he came to me and he said, Austin, your temptation when your son grows up and defies you is going to be to want to exert your authority by showing yourself as stronger than he is. Right by standing up. So if he's yelling, you want to yell louder. That's going to be the temptation. That's your heart. But as soon as you do that, you've told your child that they can get a rise out of you, and now they know they've won. Now they know they've won. And so what you should do instead is when your child throws a tantrum, when they're freaking out, sit calmly. Address them calmly. You don't let them get away with it, but you address them calmly because now they know they can't change your emotions based on their attitude. That, that's, how you, that's how you win the child. Because the child knows that you're in control. And that's what we're seeing in this. We see verses 1 through 8, tantrum abounding. And then in verses 9 through 14, the calm and gentle God of the universe, ready to peacefully give judgment that will destroy the power of the other kingdoms. God sitting in peaceful strength. And then he turns. He's not in heaven losing his cool. He's not freaking out in response to these kingdoms. He's calmly dealing with them. And he turns and gives the kingdom to the Son of Man, which we know from last week to be Jesus. And here's what's fascinating about verses 15 to 28. They actually don't really give us any new information. Daniel goes and he asks for clarity. He says, hey, can you, can you clarify this for me? Give me a better insight into what's happening. And the angel just recapitulates. He retells the story from different vantage points, giving slightly more detail, but really nothing new. There's only one minor detail that we get from verses 15 to 28 that will change how we understand what's happening in Daniel chapter 7, and it's this. As the kingdom is given to the Son of Man, it's also given to his people. 
As the kingdom is given to the Son of Man, it's also given to his people. Let me see if I can make this plain. His victory is our victory. Like what we just heard from Glenn as he shared his testimony. That's Jesus' story of victory in Glenn's life. And what happens? Satan loses his power. He loses his dominion. Jesus' victory is our victory. And we jump down to 19 to 22 and we get a little bit more of the story. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. All right, so Daniel desires more information, and he gets slightly more information, but the story doesn't change much, does it? It doesn't. It really, it really doesn't change much. In fact, Daniel's desire for more information might be met with more anxiety. Let me explain why. Verse 21 gives us some clarity. It's the only thing we see kind of changing. It's this piece of the puzzle that is the saints of God. Verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And prevailed over them. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that I said apocalyptic literature exists to give the people of God hope. That verse right there does not feel like hope. The beast wars against and prevails over the people of God. They're losing they have no strength to defeat this beast. That's the narrative for us. It's the people of God in verse 20, 21 that the saints are defeated. And this is the constant story of Daniel, isn't it? In Daniel chapter 3, what do we see? That they are faithful and they are thrown into the fiery furnace. In Daniel chapter 6, what do we see? That Daniel is faithful and he is thrown into the lion's den, prevailed over. It's the story of Daniel coming out in apocalyptic literature. God's people under beastly human rule that is motivated by the great beast, which is Satan, will be trampled down and defeated over and over and over again. Welcome to your life. Life in Christ. Until. Until the Ancient of Days shows up. Until the Ancient of Days shows up. And one like the Son of God is in the fire with his people. And the angel of the Lord shuts the mouth of the lions because the victory of God's kingdom is not brought about by his people's ability. Notice in this chapter, it never says, and the people of God prevailed over the beast. Never says that. 
It says, until the Ancient of Days showed up. Until God showed up, they were defeated. Until God showed up, they were consumed, devoured, destroyed. Because the victory of God's kingdom is not brought about by his people's ability, but by our king who receives the kingdom. Because he wins, the people of God win. The Ancient of Days judges according to the kingdom you belong in. The Ancient of Days judges according to the kingdom you belong in. Look, wait, look at this, verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. All we have seen the saints do so far is lose. <laughs> That's it. That's all we've seen them do so far. Who in this chapter has won? The Ancient of Days and won like the Son of Man. So who receives the kingdom? Those who belong to the king. Those who belong to the Ancient of Days. And then we move to verse 23 through 28. We get a, bit of, uh, a little bit of a better picture. It's a new window, so let's see what other details we learn. Thus, he said, as for the fourth kingdom on earth, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a, kingdom, a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the, this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be a different one from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right. So here's what I want to I just real quickly do, because I know that there's probably some of you in here that have a lot of questions about who these horns are. Um, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't totally know. Here's what I do know. And that's not because I just didn't study. That's hours of study, hours of people making claims on who these horns are. And this is what I know. I just don't know. I don't totally know. But I know what's behind them. I know what's behind them. This horn here in this chapter, he will rise up and he'll take on the other ten horns and, uh, or he'll put down three kings and he'll take power over the rest of them. And um, He's going to speak words against the Most High. He's going to wear out the people of God. He's going to think to change the times and the law. And he shall be given, and the people of God shall be given to him for a time, time, and half a time. So this beast has some power. And it's power that we need to be careful not to ignore. We can't just skip to the end of the story and say, God wins, it's fine. Who cares if you're homeless? You're going to win the lottery someday. 
We don't skip to the end of the story. Yes, that is true, but we can do some damage if we miss the reality that the people of God will suffer under this beast's dominion. Here's what I'm going to argue for here. Um, I do believe that this is what Revelation talks about as being the Antichrist and what 1 John talks about as being the Antichrist. I believe it's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, or 2 Thessalonians. Yet, I think if we make this simply about one future ruler who will persecute the people of God, we miss John's statement in 1 John 2 where he says, many antichrists have come. Many antichrists have come. What is an antichrist? You're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Did this guy have a stroke? An antichrist is an anti-savior. It's anti-God. Where have we seen that in the book of Daniel? Have we seen an anti-savior, an anti-God in the book of Daniel? Yeah, we have. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar speaks against God and wears out the people of God. In chapter 5, Belshazzar speaks words against God. And in chapter 6, there's a power behind the scenes that seeks to change the law to destroy the people of God. All throughout Scripture, we see political power and false religion being wielded to turn the people away from God and towards destruction. This beast does have power. This Antichrist does have power, and it is working so hard even now to turn God's people away from God and towards other saviors. Sometimes that is outright oppression, but other times it's careful deceit, speaking words against the Most High. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of this. This is not some future ruler we should be like, well, when the Antichrist comes. There are many even now that are seeking to turn you away from the living God and towards other saviors. Anything that turns our eyes away from the victory of Jesus is a type of antichrist. Anything. Anything that turns our eyes away from the victory of Jesus that is also ours in him and turns our hope towards other things for salvation is an antichrist and it is destructive towards your Christian life and your Christian walk. It will turn you away from the living God. It will turn you away from the power of the gospel to look at other things for your salvation. Anything that says, put your hope in me. This way to life that is not Jesus is anti-Christ. But the Antichrist's dominion isn't eternal. It only lasts for a time. God will sit in judgment and he will destroy those who stand against him and his people. Brothers and sisters, this is a call for patient endurance for us. This is a call for patient endurance for us. Notice that in this text it doesn't call us into action. I mean, maybe you can find it. I could not find it. I spent a lot of time trying to say, okay, where do we grab, where do we grab the application here and, and give it to our people so that they can go out? And, and it's just not there. It just, we're going to be defeated, but God's going to prevail, and he's going to give us a kingdom. We're going to suffer under temporary kingdoms for a time, but the everlasting kingdom will be given to God because Christ wins a victory, and when Christ wins a victory, his people win a victory. 
Daniel isn't told to hold fast or work harder to fight against the beast. He's not even told exact details of when the kingdom will be given over to the people of God. He just knows that it will. He just knows that it will. And I think that's the knowledge we're called to have to today. Have today. An anchor for our souls, a hope that does not disappoint, that one day our king will be fully and finally victorious. And because he is victorious, we will stand victorious. Because Christ is victorious, his people are victorious. And so it's a call for patient endurance. It's a call to remember, like Daniel, as he is in the first year of Belshazzar and he looks forward to what will be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that will hurt and harm the people of God. And he knows that this will last far beyond his lifetime. The invitation for him is patient endurance. Remain faithful. Hope in God. You will be prevailed over. Hope in God. You see, there's nothing, there's just nothing at all in the Bible that implies we'll have great success this side of God's return. We will make disciples, and we will see people come to know God. But all throughout Scripture, when that happens, nations rage. Nations rage. We should pray for revival. We should. And we should expect that it might also lead to difficulty for the people of God. So if you knew for a fact that you were going to win the lottery, but you knew that before that happened, you were going to go broke, live a homeless life for a season, and feel a lot of pain during that time, how would you go about living your life? Well, you'd probably do everything within your power to scrounge up enough money to continue buying lottery tickets. You'd make investments in that future hope, knowing that even if you can't see it now, you will one day. That's the way our future hope works. It's guaranteed. This life is not forever, and even when we feel like we have nothing to give, we do everything we can to make investments in that future kingdom. We pursue communion with God. We pursue communion with the people of God. We proclaim the gospel at all costs, and we live faithfully in our city because we know that it's not our eternal home. God's kingdom is. But I think we also respond in prayerful endurance. There's something in this chapter that sticks out like a sore thumb. If apocalyptic literature is meant for comfort, why Daniel's response in verse 28? As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. I kept the matter in my heart. Why that response? You just heard you're going to possess the kingdom. Why that response because he understands the reality that before God's kingdom is fully realized they will suffer and the people of God will suffer I had a professor years ago who made a case that when one of the body when one member of the body of Christ suffers all of us suffer uh, so even when we aren't feeling the full weight of 
of persecution, it does not mean the body of Christ isn't. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. You feel that. You feel that in, in the, the lifeblood of a church. When one of us is suffering in some capacity, we all suffer. But we also feel that universally and globally. Brothers and sisters, this beast that is in this chapter, he's warring against the saints and prevailing over them right now in our world. So this morning as you walked in, you got a little card. You got a little card with a number on it. And we gave out uh, cards numbers 1 through 10 of the top 10 persecuted countries in the nation. So here's what we're going to do to finish our service. For a few minutes, we're going to pray. And so um, if you have number one, you're going to come over to this wall right here. If you have number two, you're going to go to that wall right there. Number three to the back there. Number four in the corner. Number five in the corner. Number six right over here. Number seven. Number eight. Number nine right up here in the front. And number 10 in the back. One of your members in your group will have a little piece of paper to read expressing what that persecution looks like in that country. And then we are going to pray for our brothers and sisters in these countries. Because when one member suffers, we all suffer. And so right now, we just want to pray for them. We want to pray that they would be given strength and that they would be given hope and that they would be reminded of the everlasting kingdom even now. And then we're going to come back together and just worship as we go. So, uh, divide and conquer. 